This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khanan. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Well, Jamal, we're going to be talking about the fist bump heard around the world today. Our show is going to be focusing on the successes and failures and, in my opinion, kind of disasters from the American perspective and perhaps successes from the Saudi perspective of uh, President Biden's trip to the Middle East, the Arab world, and uh, the apartheid state. We have a lot to unpack today, but before we get to all of those items, we're going to be watching and listening to an interview that you did with Professor Rashid Khalidi, who's a professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Columbia University and one of the foremost authorities on the question of Palestine in relation to U.S. foreign policy. He also happens to be part of, uh, he and his family are also part of a larger lawsuit challenging the U.S. building its uh, Jerusalem embassy on stolen Palestinian land. So we've got a lot to talk about today. It's really going to be a wonderful show. That's right. So uh, first, let's watch uh, Dr. Khalidi. President Biden capped a four-day trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia, his first trip to the Middle East since taking office. He started his trip by meeting with Israeli leaders to expand security ties with the country. His trip comes on the heels of the murder of Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Abu Aqli by Israeli snipers and a recent upsurge in analysis of Israel as an apartheid state. As expected, President Biden did not address Israel's human rights violations, nor did he discuss the systematic land theft of Palestinian land. In fact, confiscated land is the proposed site for a U.S. diplomatic compound in Jerusalem on plans submitted in February 2021 by the U.S. Department of State and the Israel Land Authority. The owners of the land, both U.S. citizens and Palestinian residents of occupied East Jerusalem, demand that the Biden administration and the Israeli government cancel the plans. Joining us to discuss this and more, Dr. Rashid Khalidi. Dr. Khalidi is an acclaimed Middle East historian. He is the Edward Said Professor of Modern Arab Studies at Columbia University and author of numerous books the most recent of which is the 100 Years' War on Palestine. Welcome, welcome to Arab Talk, Dr. Khalidi. Thanks for having me. Let me start uh, you know, by giving us some historical background of this piece of land that the U.S. plans to build, build its new embassy on. This is a plot of about seven and a half acres, more than three hectares which is owned by a variety of Jerusalem families, and a large part of which is actually waqf, which is to say a pious Islamic endowment. Most of it is private property, uh, owned, as I said, by a number of families, including my own. The legal group Adala, based in Haifa, has done research on the basis of previous research, which the families did, and has come up with um, lease lease, uh, agreements between the owners uh, and the British government that run right up to the end of the British mandate in 1948. So we have evidence uh, of ownership of this property uh, in the form of agreements between the British government, which paid rent uh, for it. It was the site of the Allenby Barracks, which was the major British military base in the Jerusalem area uh, until 1948. So the British leased the land uh, from a number of families. Uh, and uh, we are we are... 
obviously extremely unhappy at the idea, particularly those of us who are U.S. citizens, not only that the U.S. embassy is going to be moved to Jerusalem, which is a problem in a number of ways, but also that this is being done on the private property of American citizens. Now, uh, Israel has this, uh, I mean, many people don't know about this law called the absentee law, by which it, it, it finds dif- different ways to confiscate land. Um, what is this absentee law? What, what does it entail? Well, according to this law, absentee property law, the property of anyone who was not inside the borders of the state of Israel uh, in 1948, meaning someone who could have been on the other side of the armistice line in Jerusalem, or people who were driven out of their homes by Israeli forces, are considered absentees, and their property is subject to confiscation. So Israel chases the people out and then confiscates their property, uh, all of it under this legal pretext of the absentee property law. Um, the, 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 The property was then put under the control of somebody called the custodian of absentee property, and eventually it has been transferred to a variety of Israeli government bodies like the Israel Lands Authority, which is the one that you mentioned. Uh, entered into an agreement with the U.S. State Department for the building of an embassy uh, on this plot of land. So in its report definitively characterizing Israel as apartheid, Amnesty International describes this law, a key instrument in Israel's plan to to, uh, divest Palestinians uh, of all rights. Uh, Would you agree with this? Certainly it was meant to divest them of their property rights. Um, the expulsion of Palestinians uh, deprive them of their right to live in their homeland and they're preventing them from return, deprive them of their right under United Nations resolutions to return to their homes after they had been expelled from them. The absentee property law completed this process by legalizing the theft of the land that they were forced to leave by force of arms or fled out in terror. Um, as a result of attacks on their homes and their villages and their cities. So this is a this is a key, I mean, I would say it's the keystone in terms of uh, property inside Palestine, because by this mechanism throughout Israel, uh, most of the land, which today forms the property, the, the land of Israel, let's say most of the land within the, the borders, within the green line, uh, 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 in fact, was seized, stolen, confiscated, you can use whatever word you choose, uh, under this law. So it completed the process whereby Israel not only took over the country, expelled its population, but then claimed their property as its own. And this applied not just to land, but to books, to uh, furniture, to buildings, to bank accounts, uh, to uh, commercial establishments, industry, orange groves, uh, all kinds of uh, fixed and movable property. All of it becomes absentee property, so-called. All of it uh, then is distributed by the state to new settlers. So uh, there's a massive wealth transfer in addition to a population, a demographic shift caused during the Nakba, during the, the expulsions uh, of 1948. What records do the families have? I mean, uh, has this been, if we're talking about the uh, what Amnesty International talked about, about, has this been an ongoing defense by the families involved uh, Uh, What has the tactic been? Well, many, many, many property owners have tried to challenge Israel's absentee property laws in the Israeli courts. 
but the Israeli courts are designed to protect and make legal what should be illegal, which is to say, to, 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 to juridically sanctify the theft of this property. Uh, so there's actually in practice no legal resource within the Israeli system for people who've been deprived of their property. If there were, most of the property in Israel would revert to its Palestinian owners. Uh, Jewish-owned Jewish property in Palestine in 1948 amounted to something like 6 or 7% of the whole. Most of the privately owned land in Palestine was in Arab hands. Um, and all of that has been basically stolen or confiscated, transferred uh, into the hands of the state, and then it, it, it distributed it as it chose. So, but the difference in this, uh, this property now is going to be uh, uh, built on by the United States. You have U.S. citizens who, who own parts of this property. Uh, I mean, is there a way to put pressure on the U.S. Department of State to abandon its plans because it involves not only land theft, but it, only, it involves land theft of, of U.S. citizens. Exactly. Well, th th this has come up once before. Uh, a plan was submitted in the 1990s. And at that time, the families began research, discovered that this was happening. And um, we wrote a letter to the then U.S. Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, in which we laid out all of the facts of the case and uh, protested at the idea of the United States government building on the private property stolen from American citizens. Um, we, at the time, we asked for a meeting with the Secretary of State, which we never, which we never were able to have. We were never granted such a meeting. Um, eventually, the State Department responded and said, we've taken note of this. And in fact, the planning permission then lapsed at that time, uh, in the early 2000s. This letter was written, I think, in 1997 or 1998. Um, so the families have once before challenged this. Um, and at that time, planning permission was allowed to lapse. This time, um, we, we intend, obviously, to, to, to take this matter up with our, those of us who are American citizens with our government. It's outrageous. Uh, no, in, no other, in no other country of the world would property confiscated by U.S. citizens be used by the U.S. government for a diplomatic facility in, in Poland or in Brazil, if the government were to seize the property of US citizens or Cuba, where it, this has happened, it would be inconceivable that the US government would, uh, would uh, agree with that government that had stolen that land to build an American diplomatic facility on it. So we will, we will obviously continue to push this. Um, we only found out about this a little more than a week ago, which is to say, we only found out from Adela that they had discovered a, a, a variety of new evidence to show our ownership of this property. We knew we owned it, and we had heard a couple of months ago that the planning process was starting again. Um, but it was only about two weeks ago that IDATA came up with the results of its research in the Israeli state archives and in other archives that proved conclusively uh, our ownership of this land. But have you heard anything from from the State Department? Has they no. have they they no. haven't issued any any statement and and it seems they are proceeding with their plans. Uh, well, as of we now. will see. We we have yet to do what we did back in 1997-1998, which is to send a formal letter uh, to the State Department. As I say, we just found out about this, and we immediately uh, Adana was was the spearhead of this. They're the ones who discovered these, these uh, lease documents that proved 
uh, our families are different, the different families ownership. Um, and we immediately, uh, uh, that immediately went to the press with this. And it was reported in the New York Times. It was reported by NBC. It was reported by Haaretz, by the Jerusalem Post, by a variety of Arab media. Uh, I'm still getting, and some of us are still, Adada is still getting requests for interviews about this. The next step will be to uh, will be to bring this to you, uh, once again to the attention of the State Department. They know uh, we received a letter from the State Department in December 1998 saying we have taken note of your letter, so they know it. Now, maybe the current incumbents in the State Department are ignorant of the historic memory of the department they supposedly run, um, or maybe they're just ignoring it. Uh, we'll find out. We, we, will, we will certainly bring it to their attention as forcefully as we can. Well, many uh, Palestinians, and especially, of, of course, Palestinian Americans are very dissatisfied with the State Department, especially with its last... Uh, statement on the murder of Shirin Abu Akhli, uh, saying that this was inconclusive. Uh, uh, I mean, Shirin Abu Akhli in the quest for justice. As an American citizen, there was hope that justice would be served two months after her murder, and it is uh, astounding how Biden will not hold Israel accountable. What do you make of this? Well, I think it's only one of many reasons Americans of Palestinian descent should be angry with their government, who's, who's, who, who, whom we keep in, in, with our taxes, whom we keep going with our taxes. We pay for these people to disserve us or to poorly serve us. It's not only uh, this disgraceful murder of Shireen Abu Akhli, who is the third Palestinian, the third person to be killed, third American citizen to be killed recently. Rachel Corey was murdered by the Israeli military, an aged Palestinian man, was allowed to, to die of a heart attack after being arrested by the Israelis and pushed on the ground in the winter. And we now have Shirin Abu Akhli. The U.S. government has done nothing about three cases of murder of U.S. citizens who happen to also be Palestinians. The U.S. government has done nothing about Israel's discriminatory treatment of Palestinian Americans and other Arab Americans uh, upon entering Israel. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a scandal that Israel should allow uh, should be allowed or should be asking for visa-free treatment of Israelis arriving in the United States and Palestinian Americans who arrive in Israel are subjected to lengthy and humiliating interrogation uh, and sometimes searches and sometimes even strip searches um, uh, in distinction from all other Americans. So there are many reasons why Americans who, who are of Palestinian origin should be dissatisfied with our government's appalling uh, uh, failure to stand up for for our rights as American citizens, you're you're, you're talking about the travel conditions for for Palestinian Americans and and, and Arab Americans in 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 general traveling there, because you you're touching on another topic, which is uh, Israel is demanding a, a visa waiver for its citizens yeah, exactly. to come to, to come to the United States while still discriminating against uh, a segment of the American society. Yeah, I mean. It, it, they're, they're, they're in, dip, in, the, in diplomatic uh, uh, parlance, there's something called uh, which in, in English would be uh, 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 treating people in exactly the same way. If Israel treats a segment of American citizens this way, the United States government should not just not give Israelis 
visa waivers, it should treat a segment of Israeli citizens in a particularly humiliating and offensive manner, simply to show Israel that it cannot do this to Americans. But our government rolls over uh, uh, with Israel. It simply allows Israel to get away with it. This kind of impunity, this kind of arrogance that Israel shows towards the United States um, is, is, is a particularly egregious, is particularly egregious when it comes to Palestinian Americans, whether it's their property, whether it's their lives, whether it's their freedom to travel to what is after all their own country. Um, I have, a, I have a, a, a relative, Palestinian relative who was prevented from going to the beach. He was arrested simply wow. because he didn't have a, he didn't have a, a permit to go to, to the beach in Yaffa. Uh, uh, in his own country, he can't go to the beach without an Israeli permit. He's not an American citizen, as it happens, this relative. But Americans all over uh, Palestine are humiliated, detained. As I mentioned, one of them, an elderly man, was killed um, by Israeli soldiers after he was detained. So uh, these are these are all cases, together with this issue of property that, you, that we've mentioned, uh, which I think Palestinian Americans should be bringing to the attention of the State Department and of their elected representatives. I mean, these people supposedly represent us and they, we pay the taxes that, that, that keep their offices running. Um, and we have a right uh, to have our government protect us. Former President Trump uh, did a lot of damaging things uh, towards Palestinians, moving the, of course, the, the U.S. Embassy in, into Jerusalem, uh, cutting uh, U.S. aid, uh, uh, I think from uh, UNRWA at the time and, and other institutions. And so a lot of Palestinian Americans were hopeful that President Biden would reverse some of these things. How do you rate his administration? And, and frankly, how do you rate his uh, first trip to the region and his meeting with Palestinians and Israelis? I would give him a grade of something between D minus and F um, for his policy on, on the Middle East generally and on Palestine in particular, uh, and the same grade for his trip. Um, he's not only failed to reverse the Trump policies that you mentioned, he has, his administration has furthered the process of normalization between Israel and dictatorial Arab regimes, um, which is designed by Israel to bury the Palestine issue and to have relations with the Arab countries that it can, that it can establish relations with, um, and in a way to pry them away from the Palestinians. So this is an anti-Palestinian measure. Uh, the administration talks about it as helping to establish peace in the Middle East. Peace in the Middle East will be established when the Palestine question is resolved in a just fashion, not by helping Israel to bury it while continuing its occupation and dispossession of the Palestinians. On every other issue that Trump, on every other policy issue where Trump uh, uh, changed US policy, whether calling settlements illegal, whether uh, accepting Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights, whether moving the embassy to Jerusalem, whether accepting Israel's annexation of Jerusalem, whether closing the PLO mission in Washington, whether closing the U.S. consulate in East Jerusalem, on every single initiative taken by Trump, the Biden administration has failed to reverse it. They have done nothing. They have been, in other words, as bad as Trump on every issue. They, they did change the policy on UNRWA. So they threw $100 million to Palestinian hospitals, and they threw more than that, a little more than that to UNRWA. In a, in, a, in, a, in a situation where Israel gets close to $4 billion in U.S. aid for its military, 
and in a situation where hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of dollars in tax-free 501c3 donations are funneled to Israel, including to things like the Friends of the Israel Defense Forces. And 501c3s, whose objective is to build settlements on stolen Palestinian lands. $100 million is chump change. It's insulting, actually. I think it was, I think it was a disgrace that any Palestinian leader met with Biden, who explicitly said, I will not do anything to halt the occupation. I will not do anything to change the status quo. I will not start a process of negotiation. I'll give you a little change. $100 million here and $100 million there, as against many billions a year, is really insulting, in fact. And I think it shows the relative view of American policymakers. Palestinians are not fully human, whereas Israelis deserve, um, obviously, all kinds of attention and care and solicitude uh, from American policymakers. You are an acclaimed historian, and I'm, I'm sure you've done a lot of research on apartheid and uh, apartheid South Africa. Within, within the past two to three years, several major organizations, starting with Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, then moving on to Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, the United Nations, Israel's own former attorney general, all certifying basically Israel as an apartheid regime, yet we haven't seen the same type of pressure that we saw when uh, what uh, basically South Africa, apartheid South Africa faced during that period. What's the difference here? Well, I think there are a number of differences. Uh, I, I don't think that what the regime that Israel has installed is identical to apartheid. I actually think it's worse in many respects. And many, many South Africans involved in their liberation struggle upon visiting Palestine agree with that. They say, this is much worse than what we endured. And there, there are many ways in which the two systems are, are, are similar. And in fact, the legal uh, under the legal definition of apartheid established a number of years ago, certainly the regime that Israel has instituted for control of the Palestinians and dispossession of the Palestinians fits the legal definition. There's no question of that. Um, but as to why uh, Israel has not been treated in the same way as South Africa, I think there are a couple of points that should be made. First of all, South Africa didn't have much of a lobby inside the United States. Israel, has Israel and before it, the Zionist movement, spent generations building up support among evangelical Christians in the Jewish community, in, among, among various other churches, for its version of reality. It's largely mythological version of reality. Uh, and it has massive political support within the United States, the leadership of both American political parties, both every single leader of the Democratic Party and the leaders of the Republican Party subscribe to every ludicrous thesis that Israel puts forward, making the desert bloom, the only democracy in the Middle East, all of this nonsense. A democracy which rules over half a million Palestinians who have no rights, what kind of democracy is that? It's democracy for one segment of its population, like white South Africa. But it's not a democracy in terms of the people who've been under its rule uh, in the case of the occupied territories for 55 years. Um, but American politicians subscribe to this nonsense. They not only subscribe it, they repeat it like robots. At, at, every, at every possible occasion. So that's one reason there's a difference. A second reason that there's a difference is that the anti-apartheid movement built allies all over the political spectrum. In other words, there were black churches and there were white churches. 
there were corporations and there were trade unions. There were student groups uh, and there were uh, uh, other groups involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, I returned to the United States from Lebanon in the early 1980s, actually in the mid 1980s. And I remember that under the Reagan administration, how effective that coalition building was in forcing the administration uh, uh, under President Reagan and Secretary of State Schultz to change American policy. They were forced to do that by an extraordinarily competent campaign. And remember, at the core of that campaign were a, very, were a group that was becoming increasingly influential in American politics, which is African-Americans. It was they who carried that banner. And then a variety of other groups, church groups, as I said, unions and others, who joined together with them because of their coalition building. Uh, in order to do the same thing, uh, it would be necessary to have the same kind of coalition building mm -hmm. with a variety of groups to make it clear that what Israel is doing is a violation of, of basic American values in terms of this apartheid system, in terms of this discriminatory system. I personally like talking about it in terms of Jim Crow because the laws that Israel has adopted both for treatment of Palestinian citizens within Israel and for Palestinians under occupation are quite similar to the laws adopted to prevent African-Americans from having the right to vote, uh, from segregating them, uh, from uh, 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 public conveniences like buses and water fountains and so forth. Um, and I think that those kinds of parallels, as well as the parallel with apartheid, if they were used effectively uh, by such a coalition, could eventually have an impact in the United States. But it, requ it would require the kind of work that was done around apartheid for many, many, many years. As an indicator, uh, have you seen a, a shift uh, yeah, within your students, with, with the young generation? I mean, recent polls uh, have been showing, at least, for example, with uh, Jewish Americans, uh, they, they have a different uh, line of thinking about what Israel is than their, uh, the older, than, than their parents, for example. I, I certainly think that's true uh, in my experience. I mean, I know the polling is unequivocal. Democrats, liberals, uh, much of the American Jewish community, and especially young people, are increasingly favorable to the Palestinians and are increasingly critical of Israel. Uh, that is, is, is a trend that has been continuing for many years now, uh, at least half a dozen, maybe as much as 10 years. There's been a steady shift among all of those groups, a large segment of the Jewish community, young people, uh, liberals, and Democrats generally. Uh, if you look at the polling of Democrats, most of them are in a completely different place from the gerontocracy, the very old people who run the Democratic Party, people in their late 70s and 80s, like President Biden and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, they represent a generation that believes every myth Israel has ever created. Young people, most of them, and certainly large numbers of them, increasing numbers of them, don't believe uh, those myths. And I've observed, so that's the polling. There's no question that that shows a trend. But I've noticed that on college campuses, both the places that I've taught but also the places where I lecture. Um, there's an increasing openness. Uh, even if people are not critical of Israel, they don't believe the lies and they're open-minded and they listen. And the scholarship has also changed. It's not just campus politics have changed so that you have resolutions in support of BDS on many, many American college campuses. It's also that the teaching of Palestine has changed. Uh, it, it, it used to be impossible to find decent, objective, uh, serious books on Palestine. When I was an, uh, an undergraduate many, many, many years ago, many decades ago, 
Um, you couldn't find good books on the topic. Most of what was written essentially reflected an Israeli point of view. That's no longer true in history and anthropology and literature, in political science, in sociology. There's a vast range of objective, critical, intelligently written books by highly qualified academics, many of them Jewish and Israeli, uh, which simply are completely at odds with the kind of nonsense that Israel would like us to believe. And college students are not fools. They know how to judge this stuff. They can read the old propaganda type literature and they can read the new, the new works. Uh, they're not being brainwashed. They have ample access to all kinds of materials, both via social media, by the internet and in, in, their, in, their, in their reading. And I think that has impelled a shift uh, uh, among the younger generation generally. Uh, which is which has been quite striking over the past, ten, I would say, 10 years or so, maybe more. Dr. Rashid Khalidi, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's the voice and the face of Professor Rashid Khalidi, Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at Columbia University. And, you know, Rashid uh, has a lot of insights, a lot of things to say, Jamal, And, you know, that particular perspective, you know, in its totality and complexity and depth, you don't hear much. Uh, It was a really great interview. That's right, Jess. And we've, of course, uh, discussed many topics, including the murder of uh, Shireen Abu Akli and and, uh, Biden's trip. But uh, what's astounding, Jess, is that the State Department, the U.S. government in general, they have known for many years that this land belongs to Palestinians, as, as most of what is now called Israel. I mean, there are owners, uh, there are, whether absentee or, or they're, they're li- even sometimes they consider them absentee, even if they moved from one part of Palestine to, to the other. Right. And, 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 and they've held uh, putting these plans into into motion well uh, first of all they've held every every single president since congress passed uh, that uh, embassy act uh, has every six months refused to or postponed basically moving the u.s embassy from tel aviv to jerusalem until donald trump so so donald trump basically uh, broke that uh, tradition and and since then, um, Joe Biden has been a big disappointment because he hasn't reversed anything that Donald Trump has done, except one thing, which is kind of ridiculous, which is basically restoring financial aid to UNRWA, um, you know, That's to the Palestinians, it. which is, uh, you know, uh, a drop in the bucket con- uh, when compared to the uh, what the United States gives to Israel uh, close to $4 billion a year. We're talking about $180 million stops that has been restored. He has not reversed the moving in the embassy into Jerusalem. He has not reversed the annexation or the recognition of the annexation of the Golan Heights, which is something we've discussed before, but right. we haven't talked about that. He really has done nothing uh, and instead, uh, and we'll start talking about this trip, the first thing right at uh, uh, Lod Airport, which Israel calls Ben-Gurion Airport, that's the Palestinian Lod Airport, when he uh, basically arrived 
he, he was dragged into repeating, I would say kind of like, or, or right. uh, you know, that's what uh, the current new prime minister of Israel um, basically said, he, he told him that this is what you said, that you, you don't have to be a Jew to be a Zionist to, you know, something that uh, Biden right. has said many, many years ago. And Biden repeated that. He reaffirmed right. his but, Zionism, basically. I right. mean, this is... But, but, here, but, but the reality is, Jamal, and, you know, we're making a big deal, as we should, about Biden's trip to an apartheid state, his commitment as a non-Jew, as committed Zionist, Christian Zionist. He's a committed Christian Zionist. But the reality is, if you go back in time and you look at Joe Biden's rhetoric, his statements, his voting pattern in the U.S. Senate for 25 plus years. He is one of the most committed supporters of the apartheid state as a Democrat. And um, why would we expect anything different from Joe Biden as the president of the United States? I mean, my my big word for Joe Biden on this trip, Jamal, we'll get to it in a minute, is supplicant. He He's a supplicant to an apartheid state he was a supplicant to uh, the Saudi uh, regime. He was a supplicant to all of the, you know, the uh, the Gulf Cooperation uh, Council meetings. Uh, the trip was a disaster. But my question back to you, you're not really surprised about Biden's Christian Zionist stance. He's always been that way, right? No, no. Uh, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. I'm just... Uh... Repeating what happened during these events, of course. But are you surprised? I'm, no, I'm not surprised. But I tell you what, I'm surprised because there are statements and 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 positions you take as a senator or as a congressman or congresswoman, and there are positions you take as a president of the United States, and there is a big difference. There is a big difference in that because we know how. Uh, Many former, uh, you know, Congress, including Barack Obama, what he used to say, his position on Palestine when he was running for Congress, when he was in, in uh, when he lived in Chicago, and when he became even a senator, and then later on when That's he right. be, became a, a president, and also there are changes, uh, facts, and changes on the ground. Uh, Twenty-four months ago, or or more, uh, um, the United Nations did not label Israel as an apartheid state. Twenty-four mo- months ago, or more, Human Rights Watch did not label Israel as an apartheid state. So he's coming to a presidency, assumingly, with open eyes and open ears, and he yeah. knows what's going on around him. Israel <laughs> today as defined in the international community by most international uh, organizations, by the United Nations, by its own human rights organization, Beth Salem, identifies as an apartheid regime. And so when you go and talk about the great relationship between the United States and Israel and talk about only about the security of Israel and talk about uh, Iran and you just ignore uh, half the population or more uh, people who live between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River ignore their human rights. Human well, rights. That, 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 that's why the trip was such a such a dismal failure because 
Um, well, before I get to that statement, I just want to say Biden went to the apartheid state and to the region weak. He went there weakened because of global economic uh, pressures. Things are not going well in Russia-Ukraine war. And his poll numbers in the United States are a disaster. So he goes to the apartheid regime weakened. So let's put that on one side. And on the other side, he goes to MBS, he goes to Saudi Arabia, thumps his chest and says, I confront any world leader who commits human rights violations. When he, in fact, just came back from the apartheid state, committing apartheid, committing atrocities, committing human rights violations against Palestinians every single freaking day, Jamal. And he doesn't have the, the courage, the dignity, the the, I was going to use another word, but we're not going to use that on, you know, the the fortitude, let's say, to confront the apartheid state. So the whole trip was bogus. No one takes him seriously. We're going to get into the details a little bit, but he is a supplicant, Jamal. He, he went on the trip, weakened. He bent over politically in so many ways. He capitulated to an apartheid state. And frankly, I mean, the fist bump, as be it as it may, he really came across extraordinarily weak on this trip. And, and we're, we're going to do the deep dive. I mean, I think we should. But just before we get into that, Jamal, I think it's important to note that he, although he committed, he said this when he met with Abu Mazen in, in Bethlehem, that he's committed to a complete investigation on the uh, murder, the Israeli murder of Sharin uh, Abu Akla. Do you expect anything to really come out of that? Uh, no, no, I don't expect anything because the State Department has prematurely said that committed, this, yeah. uh, that that they've uh, conducted an, an investigation and the results were inconclusive. I mean, they've already said that they cannot pin the bullet on on the Israelis, even though that the bullet was manufactured in the United States. That's most likely. And forensics here, I mean, if you watch any forensic show or whatever, you could easily pin the bullet on the perpetrator. If you have the bullet, you can know you, 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 forensics uh, is able to, to identify the, the type of weapon it was fired from, etc. And only the Israelis carry these kind or use these kind of weapons, American made. And, and I, I repeat what I said on the show before. The most important thing about this fact, just and that's what the United States is trying to avoid creating a debate in Congress, is, is the fact that if you use an American weapon in an illegal way, or weapons in general in an illegal way, and especially in this case, to murder an American citizen, then, you know, the United States is obligated to stop shipping you those weapons. And this is this is one of the clause that you have for um, military aid to countries. It's like you cannot exactly. use these weapons to abuse human rights. You cannot use them to kill civilians. You cannot use them to kill children. And, and, and in this case, murder a journalist and a journalist who happens to be an American citizen. So I think there is a cover-up. It's not just not, it's not just ending, um, you know, right there, by ending the investigation or by just giving a very uh, unacceptable report saying, oh, we can't, you know, can't tell who fired that bullet. It's inconclusive. I think it's a cover-up. I think, I think the United States is covering up for the crimes of Israel. And this is worse. And, and, and if we sit here as Americans, 
whether you support Israel, you don't support Israel, and you don't question that, and we're going to find you're you're just committing a major mistake. Well, that's exactly right, Jamal. And that's why, I mean, I know we're getting ahead of ourselves right now, but going into the midterm elections, which we're going to be talking a lot about, there's fractures and fissures within the Democratic Party around this issue and around other progressive issues, which is going to fragment Democrats. And on the Republican side, you know, they have their, they're going to have their own fragments because, you know, as I predicted a long time ago, and I'm sorry to be right about this, it does look like Donald Trump will be running for president again. Um, he'll announce it in the fall, it looks like. Um, the reeking of hypocrisy on this trip, specifically when it comes to the apartheid regime and the murder of uh, an American uh, uh, without any accountability, will will come back to haunt the Democrats. And I know I've said this before, I'm saying it again to anybody who will listen, but the lack of integrity, which is not surprising for any political figure, obviously, but on this particular issue around the lack of uh, certain Democrats, whether it be senators, congresspeople, or the president, following through on their commitments toward the progressive elements of the Democratic Party, this will come back to haunt them. It sure will. And um, anyway, going back to his, uh, because I want to move move on to a little bit of Saudi Arabia, but going back to his trip uh, to Palestine and uh, then his meeting uh, with Abu Mazen and, and saying that, uh, yeah, we will look into the murder of uh, Shirin Abu Akhle, and we are restoring $180 million. Uh, How insulting. Stopped, you know, How insulting. And does not recognize, doesn't say anything about human rights uh, abuses, does not talk about uh, land confiscation, which, by the way, the other thing I, uh, I forgot to mention, he refused to meet with the Abu Akhle family, but the State Department said they will, meet, they will bring them to Washington, D.C., but he refused to meet with her brother, lives right there, right, right, right in Jerusalem. He refused to meet with her brother, uh, her niece lives there, and others. So uh, then, you know, because they did not, I think, you know, Upset the Israelis. That's that's the whole reason. I mean, well, why it's not, would you? It's not, why why it's would not about you discovering? It's not right. about it's not about discovery or looking into facts and and so forth. Basically, they refuse. I mean, why bring the family all the way to Washington D.C. to meet when you're right uh, there to meet with the State Department? And I don't think they said that that they'll have a meeting with President Biden, but they said they will bring them. The State Department will bring them to Washington D.C. when they were. Five ten minutes away from where he was staying, I think the the whole game they were just yeah playing and, and, subservient to to their hosts, which is the Israeli yeah, government. Right. That that's that's the whole narrative that uh, and the whole picture that I think you know we're going to paint is his his subservience to these brutal dictators, these brutal regimes, and to add insult to injury, Jamal. Not only does he not meet with the family of Shireen Abu Akla, but he meets with uh, another war criminal, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, <laughs> while he's there. Well, he's, so while he, he's this, there. because that this is his best buddy. Biden uh, has dealt with Benjamin Netanyahu for the 30 past years, three 30 decades. Years. Yeah, know, 30 the years. They've known each other. Senator, at the United right? Nations. No, from the time Netanyahu was at the United Nations. Yeah, exactly. So, so I... 
I, I just think that this whole trip will go down historically. And by the way, Jamal, I'm going to say some things which are going to upset a lot of people today. So I'm kind of prepping people for some of analysis here. But uh, this trip is going to go down as historically a disaster. I, I don't see anything about this trip that benefits the United States in the long, in the short run, let alone in the long run, because gas prices are predicted to go up even more than they have recently by the fall. The economic situation continues to look pretty dismal. Biden said that one of the successes of his trip was going to be resumption of international, not resumption, but the creation of an international corridor between the apartheid state and the Saudi, uh, the, the medieval kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The Saudis shut that down very quickly. And then after Joe Biden celebrated this fist bump meeting with uh, MBS and, you know, wagged his finger at him. It was interesting for all of us to see how the the, the Saudi government rebuked uh, Biden when he came back to the United States. So um, do you see anything positive coming out of this from the United States perspective? No, uh, no. And I don't see anything pos positive going towards uh, the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority, aside from receiving $180 million, because, uh, as I've mentioned, Biden didn't mention anything of significance. And um, basically, it's business as usual with Israel, uh, increasing security ties, uh, ganging up on, on Iran, and, 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 you know, maybe, uh, maybe he'll reverse his policy on Iran. We don't know because of his Israeli pressure. And then going into Saudi Arabia, Jazz. You know, again, here is someone who labeled the Saudi regime as pariah, and then he goes and fist bumps and with MBS and, and avoids certain questions about the human rights in Saudi Arabia. And the, even at the conference, the Saudis get a question about Jamal Khashoggi and if they were going to compensate or apologize to the family. The reporters who asked this question were rushed out of the room, and, <laughs> and, and, and they, they shut down that basically... A press conference, and from looking right. at all the statements, as as far as the oil prices, the Saudis before Biden went there, they have already increased oil production capacity by fifty percent. They weren't right. going to increase it anymore, and now I see the administration trying to take credit for this, as far as the lowering, because he said. Uh, Prices of oil are going to go up in the fall. We, well, we don't know. Maybe you're you're correct about this, but prices of oil have been falling down slightly. The I think the uh, from from just a couple of months ago, where the barrel of oil was hundred twenty dollars, now it's about a hundred dollars. But it has nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. It has nothing it to do with the Saudi Arabia. It has to do to do with China. And, and that's basically China, the, India, Russia, and supply and demand. That's what it has to do with Jamal. That's why it's such a joke. Well, you know, the, the price has, has slipped to $100, apparently as a consequence of fears of an inflation-induced recession, particularly in China. And uh, you'll see probably more of, a, more of a drop because, like you mentioned, now other resources are coming through. Saudi Arabia is already at 50% capacity. But the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, if you hear 
also what uh, their uh, spokesperson, Al Jubair, was talking about. I was like uh, listening to him. Uh, you know, he evaded the admission of the of failure uh, to Saudi oil production. He said increasing by fifty percent in the in the past couple of months, but also didn't make any promises that's going to increase anymore. That's right, Jamal. And also, Jubair said something very interesting. I, I saw the interview that uh, one of your favorite correspondents did with him, Wolf Blitzer, and uh, Wolf Blitzer asked him directly. The United States has said that normalization will with the apartheid state should is a Saudi goal and will happen soon. And Joubert shot that down. He basically said, and who knows what's happening behind the scenes, of course, but what he said publicly to Wolf Blitzer was, no, the Saudis are not going to have normal relations with the apartheid state because essentially because Palestinians are still occupied, they're still oppressed and there's no peace. If there's legitimate peace, then maybe we'll talk about normalization of relations. So even though nothing changed with the Palestinians, Jamal, for sure, of all the Gulf countries, at least in terms of their public statements and some of their actions, the Saudis at least made what appeared to be uh, some sort of not statement of support, but a relatively strong statement in the context of, you know, all the other people who have thrown the Palestinians under the bus. And I'm talking specifically about, you know, Bahrain and UAE and Morocco. Yeah, I mean, look, we don't know what's what's going on behind the scenes. Right. And and I wouldn't be surprised if Saudi Arabia restores the relations with, with Israel uh, or they're waiting for, for the right moment because uh, we, we're, we're seeing things like this happening, unfortunately, with this norm, whole normalization act that's going on and this normalization is really done for not political reasons well some political it's economically exactly economical reasons that's the whole thing and and these regimes are starting to believe that don't worry about the Palestinians. Who cares about the Palestinians as long That's as exactly we, right. we keep increasing our uh, petrodollar, uh, you know, take and, and have the protection of the United States? And Well, and, the, yes, and, but the only difference is, you know, the, the, the populations in UAE and Bahrain, you know, the, the small, you know, Gulf states with monarchies and relatively small populations, but the Saudi uh regime and its population are much more they're they're actually as they should be much more nervous about publicly throwing the palestinians under the bus so they're whatever they're doing behind the scenes yeah i i have no no confidence that they'll do the right thing but in terms of their public statements they know that the population in saudi arabia is solidly behind palestinian self-determination so they have to walk a slightly tighter line but I know we don't have that much time left, but I do want to say something about Saudis uh, and and MBS and the Saudi response, uh, which is not going to be popular. So I, I, I have to say it anyways. Um, despite despite all of this, um, I will say one thing for the uh, Saudi regime, which is you know uh, thuggish, dictatorial, has committed horrific offenses. They did not act as subservient to the United States as other Arab countries did. I, I was really, you know, with with all of the supplication and subservience from, you know, uh, 
all the other Arab countries, you know, Jordan, Egypt, you know. Uh, and you know, you know why, Jess? I mean, yeah, I, I know why, but I'm just saying it's it's relatively interesting to me. Well, and my, and mildly refreshing that e- Egypt, United- Egypt, Jordan, Morocco, all these countries, they they receive financial aid from the United right. States, and that's right. And the, but the they, Saudi, they, but, so this, but they the, pay money, they spend exactly. money, they they spend billions and billions of dollars buying but, American right. weapons, and goods, and services, right? And on top of this, they have oil, right? Lots so of is it. it. I know, but UAE has lots of oil, but they were bending over backwards to kiss the U.S. They you know, need, you know need, what? They need protection from right. So from, what from I'm saying States. to you that, for me at least, watching the Saudi push back, watching Joubert push back, watching the MBS, despite him being like this criminal in terms of what he did to Khashoggi and what he does to other opposition voices in Saudi Arabia, it was interesting to see an arab country and regime push back on the united states that that was interesting to me yeah i mean if they really want to push back i mean i take you back to the time of uh, king faisal when was the right. oil embargo i mean if they really want to do something and they've done something in the past and and since then they've shifted their policy especially after the gulf gulf war but they do have the capability and the and the capacity to to push back because the United States needs Saudi Arabia. Need, we need Saudi oil aside from also the strategic importance of uh, Saudi Arabia. And uh, but apparently MBS also confronted Biden on what happened in Iraq and what happened in Abu Ghraib and all of the. I mean, because you know it's you know he was. If it's true, I mean, what was said, this is just the readout. Uh, you know, I don't, the United States, Biden contradicted and Biden pushed back on MBS's pushback, but they said they confronted the US president on all the mistakes that uh, the United States, all the atrocities rather, that the United States committed in Iraq, including Abu Ghraib. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me to see an Arab country kind of push back on this. Um, who knows? I mean, they, they didn't say anything about the apartheid regime, obviously, that we know of. But it's interesting to see that kind of pushback. Well, we're going to continue this conversation and see the results, actually, the aftermath. Let's see right. what's, what's going to happen. But in short, this trip was a total disaster, a total failure. It's not going to improve uh, Biden's standing in the United States or internationally. As far as if, if they were looking into something, you know, I mean, considering that this is his first official trip into the Middle East as president of the United States, it was like really just a uh, disaster. A photo up and even the photo up was a disaster. So how can you mess up with this fist bump? Now, that's the headline of all the newspapers in the world. Whenever they show his meeting with MBS, they show that fist bump. Usually, you know, photo ups just are there to kind of whitewash. Yeah, yeah. But but you can you can bet that Donald Trump and the Republicans are going to be plastering that photo of the fist bump from here to the midterms and beyond. Trust me. That's good. And and Democrats, I mean, you know, we, we don't have time to get into it today, but there's a lot of rumblings about obviously Democrats not wanting Joe Biden to run for president in 2024. And people are lining up. Democrats are lining up to take him on. So uh, Biden didn't do anything to, 
you know, shore up his his negative perceptions, that's for sure. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest episodes, and we will talk to you next week. See you next week. Thank you.